The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. I actually think Credit Suisse uh, has a long history, 164 years, and a very strong and good culture. So I don't think we have a culture problem. But there are a few things we've learned from this episode. Uh, there were some mistakes done. And that was Credit Suisse former CEO Thomas Gottstein speaking in early 2020 about a damning spying scandal that led to the departure of his predecessor, Tijan Tiam. And his promise was to clean up the bank's culture. Two and a half years later, the bank has yet another CEO, and he's taking an axe to the Zurich-based bank. Just how it will work is the focus of this week's Views Room. Welcome back to Views Room, the podcast from Reuters Breaking Views, where columnists from around the world talk about the big stories of the week. I'm your host, Amy Donlan, coming to you from London. Ulrich Kerner, the newish CEO of Credit Suisse, has a novel plan for the embattled lender, which may take years to come to fruition. It involves raising $4 billion from investors, scaling back the investment bank, and spinning off the advisory and capital markets units. They'll be known as Credit Suisse First Boston, and they'll be ran under rainmaker Michael Klein. But what do investors think about the plan, and what are the risks of it failing, like previous attempts to turn around the Swiss lender? Stay tuned as I speak to my colleagues John Foley and Liam Proud to find out. Well, there has been high drama in the corridors of Credit Suisse. And here to talk to me about it is John Foley and Liam Proud. Hi, John. Hi, Liam. Hi, Amy. I'm really keen to chat to you about the story. This has been obviously rumbling along for quite some time, and we thought it would be great to do a big deep dive. Uh, Liam Proud has been covering it, obviously, as the European banking um, expert for us. And and John, obviously, has been been pitching in as well. I mean, Liam, I guess I'll start with you, um, because, as I said, I think we've had three CEOs in less than three years um, at, at Credit Suisse. So this isn't a new thing that there is that there is change in Credit Suisse, but it does feel like it's really amped up in the past couple of months. And I just wondered if you could just give, I guess, an overview as to where where we are with Credit Suisse, what has been going on over the past couple of months? Yeah, so the context is pretty dramatic. Essentially, this is a bank that's kind of leapt from one mini crisis to the next in, in recent years. Um, I mean, it it stretches back quite a long way, but I mean, a convenient place to start would be at the beginning of 2020, sort of end of 2019, when the bank was struggling with a spying scandal, where the CEO at the time, Tijan Tian, actually ended up leaving as a result of one of his deputies being spied upon um, and subsequently going to a rival UBS. Then you had the pandemic, which was obviously hard for all banks. And not long after that, in early 2021, they had a couple of big clients blow up, basically. So Greensill Capital, which was um, the the eponymous firm of Lex Greensill. Credit Suisse was running some asset management funds for them. They got into some trouble. um, And it was one of the worst hit banks by the Archegos Capital Management hedge fund family office that blew up in early 2021. You saw a lot of management change as a result of those things. So Tijan TM left, a guy called Thomas Gottstein came in. Then there was a new chairman called Antonio Horta Rosario, and they were the team assembled to really put the ship right and it was all going to be fine. 
And then guess what? There was another scandal where Antonio Horst Rosario was um, dodging COVID restrictions. He ended up leaving. New chairman came in, Axel Lehman. Bear with me, I'm almost done here. And he said, right, this is this bank is really in a pretty horrible state. It's, it was um, starting to lose money hand over fist. It was recognising all kinds of legal liability, huge litigation charges. And he said, OK, we're going to start with a blank sheet of paper and say, what should this bank be and how do we get there? And that's how at the end of October, they ended up saying we're going to raise four billion of capital that will help us to sack a load of investment bankers um, and hugely shrink the trading businesses, which have been volatile and blow up prone and basically focus this bank on what it is at its heart, which is a wealth manager with a big Swiss retail bank. Well, very, very interesting and uh, yeah, very thorough. Uh, John, I'll just pivot over to you. What do what do investors, what does the market think of this plan? Is this, as we said, we've had a number of different leaders of this bank, I assume with all different ideas. Is this credible, this new plan? Well, you would hope, wouldn't you, that when the CEO comes out with a big strategic plan, and I'm sure we'll get into the details of that plan, some of which are quite interesting and innovative but you would hope that the share price would go up but that hasn't happened since credit suisse came out with its new revamp the shares are down about 15 percent which is um bad also ubs which is credit suisse's chief rival its shares are not down so that tells you kind of what you need to know at the moment this bank is trading at about a quarter of its book value which the book value is basically what what it would be worth if you dismantled it today and investors are only paying a quarter of that whereas if you think about other banks um, that compete with Credit Suisse and even like troubled banks. So let's think about Citigroup in the US, which is a very different kind of institution, but has also had lots of problems with, you know, sending money to the wrong people accidentally and being fined for not having sufficiently watertight processes. City trades at about half its book value. So the market is telling you that Credit Suisse is still in the sin bin. Um, part of that is because it's going to raise new equity uh, in order to kind of try and fix itself. But but a big part of it is that even after all of the stuff that they're doing to try and make Credit Suisse work better, the targets that the chief executive Uli Corner has set are pretty modest. Um, and Liam will know more about this, but uh, they're targeting about a 6% return on what they call tangible common equity, whereas Citigroup is already earning about 8% and is targeting twice that. So really we're like, I don't know if we're at rock bottom, but we're certainly not far above rock bottom. Is it one of these things, I suppose, Liam, is it one of these things where a CEO sets out, I suppose, an achievable target in the hope that, it, you know, they can exceed it? And, and as John said, I'm, I'm very keen to obviously know more of the detail of how the sort of restructuring, I guess, of Credit Suisse is going to work. But yeah, I suppose I'm just wondering, is that why we're seeing sort of, I guess, the sort of low ball targets? Yeah, I think I think there's a few things going on with, with the share price reaction and, and the targets are one of them. As John said, you know, if you you're going to do a huge equity raise. And I think it was a little bit bigger than the market expected. You do get a kind of sell off for kind of, you know, technical dilution reasons. And I think it's absolutely true that the market was quite shocked that they're saying, you know, we're going to do all this painful restructuring. It's going to take several years. And at the end of it, we're going to do a 6% return on tangible common equity. Just for comparison, you know, the closest bank that's quite similar to it would be UBS, and they easily do more than more than 10% most quarters. And the rule of thumb is that you have to do 10% at least in order to please shareholders effectively. Otherwise, you're you're destroying shareholder value, which is not a good thing. So I think partly that's what's going on here. I mean, just on on the targets, you know, they they would 
I think probably add some finesse there. They say it's 6% return, including the bits of the bank that we'll be trying to get rid of at that point. And if you exclude it, then we're going for 8% on the kind of core, you know, bank that will go forwards. But even that is very low. And I guess why else would it trade at such a low discount? There is this, you know, the phrase that you hear if you speak to investors and analysts around this bank at the moment is it's the jargony phrase execution risk, which essentially means can they pull this off without going, you know, off the rails again? Um, are they actually going to be able to to completely transform this bank in three years? It's a completely new management team. The CFO, Dixit Joshi, who came from Deutsche Bank, had been there for three weeks when he unveiled this new turnaround and it was somehow completely across the detail which was very impressive. But, you know, fairly obviously there's a kind of handicap being applied to whether or not this this restructuring will actually go ahead successfully. The UBS comparison, I think, is interesting, right? As in, is that the bank that they're hoping to look like? And I mean, I do remember myself even UBS was in a similar state after the last financial crisis. I, I do remember and it took a few years to sort out. Is is that the ultimate aim? This is a really good question, Amy, because the question is, what does what does Credit Suisse want to look like? And it's not actually obvious to us what the answer is, because like you've got a Swiss bank, which is a bit like UBS, for sure. Wealth management business, which, again, is a bit like UBS. But then you've also got this investment banking business that they're going to spin off. So all the deal-making bits, advising companies on mergers and acquisitions and advising companies on raising equity or issuing bonds, like they're, they're splitting this off into this new uh, new division with an old name, Credit Suisse First Boston. And that's not really like anything. It's sort of like a boutique standalone investment bank, like a Lazard or something or a Rothschild. But it's also not really because it's still going to be attached in some ways to Credit Suisse. So one of the one of the things that's most interesting to me about this whole story is that they're rather than trying to be like their rivals, they're trying to do something that's kind of new. And when you, you worry about execution risk, as Liam mentioned, like execution risk, like can you actually do what you say you're going to do? The execution risk probably rises when what you're trying to do is something that's like, you know, new. Uh, there isn't really a precedent for it. Uh, and that puts a big question mark over this whole exercise, I think. I think that's a really interesting point, John, just about that they're doing something different, right? As in, if you think about the way Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan or any of those kind of big banks, the way they operate, they, this is certainly not the approach they go for, right? They, they kind of want to service their clients across the board in every possible way. What are the sort of, I mean, I guess, what are the risks of this that, I mean, is it that they, they would just just be able to pull off little bits and pieces of their of their rivals business and they don't get the whole in the way that their their bigger rivals do i mean that's not actually so bad right if you think like credit suisse is sort of sixth basically in the global league tables for things like mergers and acquisitions and investment banking fees like they seem to be kind of happy with being sixth we're not hearing that the ambition is to be the number one investment bank in the world they'd rather be a solid number five or six or seven even the challenge is can you hire good people? I think, and and if and investment banking is always a talent business. It's always about poaching the good bankers and, you know, trying to motivate and incentivize them. And the question is, can Credit Suisse First Boston compete for talent with Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan, as well as can it actually de deliver the the things that will no longer be part of Credit Suisse First Boston, but will be part of Credit Suisse like trading. Or, you know, the wealth management stuff. But one of the questions that we've been trying to ask is basically, would you work for Credit Suisse First Boston if you were a really talented M&A banker? Um, and they're going to have to work a bit harder to 
make that case, I think. And what is the answer to that, John or Liam? What What is the answer? As in, are there incentives that they can offer employees? Because as again, I, I do remember that was a similar problem that UBS had was that they were they were kind of struggling to, to I guess, come up with a compelling story as, as to why it wasn't a sinking ship, basically. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's exactly what this this first Boston spin out partial spin out is trying to solve. Basically, you've got a bank that's going through a huge restructuring, you know, vast amounts of uncertainty. The share price has been in the toilet. You know, very senior people tend to get paid in equity. How can you stop, you know, them from basically seeing what is what is quite an unappealing uh, situation? Well, you say, let's carve you out into a separate unit. And we will eventually list that unit on public markets and you will be paid in shares in that unit, potentially quite handsomely, which achieves several things. One, it saves cash capital for you uh, for Credit Suisse in the interim. And two, you know, if, if people buy that that promise that this is going to be a valuable you know, investment bank in a few years with publicly traded stocks and they say, well, I could I could probably make a lot of money. So that's that's the pitch. I mean, just there's another element to the, you know, John's point about innovation and, and, and you know, historical precedents for this. We were told that basically there's there's a bunch of novel structures that they're setting up to encourage cooperation between the spun out investment bankers and the mothership back in Zurich, which I think, as we said earlier, is, is essentially a, a big wealth manager. And they're, they're trying to create these joint venture kind of structures so that they can share revenue between the wealth managers, people that have these relationships with multimillionaires and billionaires and the investment bankers who are advising them on deals. Again, it's just another area where this is quite a unique situation where you're going to have joint ventures between two companies that are sort of slowly drifting apart from one another and might not in the very long term actually be owned by the same company. So how that works is really quite quite unclear. But um, it's yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see how that plays out. Absolutely. And then there's obviously Michael Klein, which is another element of this story, which I think is really interesting, who is obviously going to run First Boston, you know, a rainmaker, came from Citigroup. I mean, to what extent would that be a draw, do you think, for for talent, that his sort of presence, the fact that he might be able to actually make this work, would that be something that could draw people in? I mean, he's a big name and he he is well regarded, I guess, whatever that means in, in, in Wall Street circles. So so it's good to have a big name kind of aspirational leader. I tend to think that what matters more is the structure that he presides over and the sort of stability and effectiveness of the whole Credit Suisse First Boston. So, you know, they've got, there are various things they've still got to work out. Like at the moment, the you know the, the investment bank is has someone running it already, a chap called David Miller, um, who by all accounts will still be there when the new Credit Suisse First Boston comes into being. So how those two work together it remains to be seen, um, and also how who runs all the who they keep among all the other division heads that they've got. So you definitely want someone who people recognise at the top because that telegraphs something about the, the ambition and the stature of the institution but there's no replacement for having a a, a functioning structure where people kind of co cooperate and collaborate and can understand clearly who's running what i think one of the things that's a bit confusing to us is that michael klein is going to be the ceo of credit suisse first boston um so how but what does that actually 
mean? Because like, see, every investment bank has its own different structure. Some have chief operating officers who effectively manage all the divisions and all the kind of heads of the businesses reported to them. Um, as we said, there's David Miller, who currently is the person who most of the investment bank reports to now. Are they going to have clear delineation of who does what, or is it going to be a bit of a fudge to try and get as many of the big people as possible to stay just for a bit longer while they get this thing off the ground? So that's one of the things that we're going to be looking for really closely. But certainly, mm-hmm. Klein has, you know, he, he's he's Mr. Spec. He, you know, he's he's got the creds. Um, he's a financial innovator, which he'll need to be because this whole thing is quite innovative. So it's yeah. not a, he's not a bad choice. And and Liam, I'm just sort of curious, sometimes in these situations where a bank is sort of under an awful lot of pressure and the CEO is obviously under an awful lot of pressure, do you get the impression that the CEO, uh, Ulrich Kerner, is, is, is getting, has the time, will be given the time to try and see if this works? I, I, I do remember again back when it was John crying at Deutsche Bank, I remember shareholders saying he has six months, he has nine months, there was always sort of a timeline. I mean, given the share price reaction, do you think that that Credit Suisse will get the time to do this? It's a very good question. I mean, I think get the time from whom is 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 the question. Will Uli Kerner get the time f- from the board? Will Will Axel Len and the chairman give him enough um, time to do this? I think so. Yes, I think it would be pretty crazy unless it was really falling apart um, after a you know eighteen months. It would be pretty crazy to get someone else in. Because, I mean, what would they do? They'd just say, oh, we need to do exactly what the previous person said. So unless he's obviously making a huge uh, error in the way he actually carries it out, which I don't I don't think is going to happen. He's pretty, you know, slick operator in, in by all accounts. Then he will be given the time by the board. I think the targets are for 2025. It'd be slightly it'd be slightly confusing if they got rid of him before then. The other question is, will they be given the time by the market? And how? And I suppose that's what I was. That's what I'm more getting at. (laughs) Yeah. So I mean, I think it's hard. I mean, what what could go wrong? It's not like the shares could really go any lower. (laughs) Famous last words. But um, you know, maybe they could trade at ten percent of tangible book value. But again, you're kind of back to the same problem. Where well, so what? I mean, the logical thing to do is if you think that they have absolutely no chance of this thing working, um, and you know, you can imagine all kinds of scenarios where maybe another big client blows up, maybe there's some financial crisis that we just can't see coming and Credit Suisse is, you know, right in the middle of it somehow, um, which, you know, you wouldn't bid it past them because they seem to slip on every banana skin that's that's available. Well, in that scenario, you'd probably say, OK, this is not viable as a as a kind of collection of businesses. Let's just break the thing up. I think it would take a lot for the board to consider that as the best option. This is, uh, you know, more than a century old bank with a kind of huge heritage. There will be, you know, hell to pay for whoever the person is that dismantles it um, and makes it into a shadow of its former self. The the counter argument is that it's already a shadow of its former self. So maybe that wouldn't be just a great shame. Isn't there also another constituency, though, because you've got to like there's the market and then there's the board. But there's also now the Saudis because you've got the Saudi National Bank investing one and a half billion dollars, is it, to buy shares in this? Yeah, one point four. They're going to want to see they're going to want to see a return on their investment, and they're now going to have like nearly ten percent of the shares, which gives them the ability to make a bit of a fuss if it doesn't do what it's supposed to. Absolutely. I mean, as you said, it seems like pressure on all sides. Um, and as you know, the the banana skins, and we seem to have a new news story every week. So plenty to focus on and plenty to chat about more in the future. So thank you so much, John. And thanks, Liam, for your time. Thank you. Thanks, Amy.
Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Amanda Gomez in New York and Oliver Tashlich in London. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on Acast, Megaphone, or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on these stories and many others at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews. <laughs> <laughs>